All right, Dr. Joy. Well, we're back. You know, this week we have another episode that we thought was so important to bring to everyone's attention. And we really just wanted to chat and have some candid conversation about um, what we call Sister MD. And so essentially, um, you know, I know I noticed that I'm getting a lot more girlfriends in the office who are specifically, you know, requesting and making it very clear that they want to have a sister for their MD, that they want to have someone who looks like them, who they feel has shared experiences, will, you know, value what they have to say and will provide a high level of care. And I think this has dramatically changed in the past few years, and I know you've seen it too. Um, not just that, you know, we have patients of color because that we've always had that, but that people are very intentional about it and expressing that to you and letting us know that, you know, that's so important to them. Um, so we wanted to talk a little bit about that today. So I'll, you know, I wanted to really ask you, what was your first experience with a black provider, a healthcare provider? So honestly, I can't remember like with the provider, I will say like probably I don't even, maybe not before residency. And when I say in residency, I got to hand select one of my attendings who's a fertility doctor to talk about my fibroids with. And, you know, even I knew what it was, you needed surgery. Um, but that was long that was I was in my thirties, which is like ridiculous. But I will say my first black doctor was my mom's godmother, who is an OG, <laughs> OBGYN out of Brooklyn, had her own practice for many, many decades and is retired now. Um, and we'll actually share hopefully some tidbits with her, um, some wisdom, get some wisdom from her about how medicine has changed um, later on the episode. But uh, for me, meeting her at the age of 16, even I knew who she was, she was like the myth, the legend, did my mom's first pap smear she delivered all the babies in her family like she was that person and I honestly you know like I met her and I guess whatever it was is that it was life-changing because I met her um like where I got to spend lots of time with her when I was 16 and I spent the summer in Brooklyn with um her family and all I know is that summer I came home that fall I was coming home saying that I wanted to become an OBGYN Never wanted to do medicine or that stuff before. I was like, I want to be a lawyer because I could talk, blah, blah, blah. And something happened. And so I think that just speaks to the magnetism of seeing someone like you and seeing their impact and what they can do. And I think, you know, if that could happen for a 16-year-old like me, just spending time, not in the office, just like kicking it with the auntie like that you know, what about that auntie experience when you're actually in the doctor's office? Like that has to be powerful. What about you? What's your story? You know, I had a few, it's so funny when you think back about things that were maybe like tiny seeds planted that you didn't realize until later on, like was the foundation of something. And so I have kind of like three interactions that stand out. One was my primary pediatrician as a child was a black woman, wow. uh, Barbara Ann Dash. I'll never forget her name because we was always going to Dr. Dash. And if anybody listening knows where Dr. Dash is in Queens, New York, I really <laughs> want to get in contact with her. So she was my pediatrician. The reason why I don't, I never really thought about it like that was because I grew up in a predominantly African-American community I mean, we had black preachers, we had black teachers, our store owners, 
you know, and we had Dr. Dash. Now, Dr. Dash was very fair skinned. So as a kid, I don't think I really realized that she was black. She was just mm-hmm. my pediatrician. You know, it was kind of like as you get older, you were like, oh, hey, like <laughs> putting those dots together. But as you know, some people in my family could probably imagine, I was like a little hypochondriac. I needed to know things. I needed to have it explained, right? I needed to know why this was different, why this mark was on my arm and stuff like you that. You did? No. 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 <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh my gosh. I'm shocked. So I made a list and I was going to like go to my annual, you know, pediatrician exam. And I had a list of things I wanted to ask her and she sat there and went down the whole thing. Mm. And so I'll never forget that because it was just like, she was listening to me as a kid, but also explaining. But I think that was, you know, the, the early stages of those little wheels connecting of something that I may be interested in later in life. So I'll say that's one. Two is also- but wait, one second, can we run it back that- that's just another way of advocating for yourself is coming with your list ready. I feel like that's the thing we always tell patients to do. And when someone does honor that, that's a that's a huge value add. So I just wanted to Oh, it's huge. And I, I never stop, you know, any girlfriends who come into my office with their list. I want you to bring your questions. This is your time. Especially when we're meeting for the first time. I want to know how I can meet your expectations, how I can address your questions. I really want to know what misconceptions do you have that I can kind mm. of clarify for you. That's super important for me for our time together. Um, so yeah, I, I like the holding space through the list. <laughs> You're answering and addressing the questions. Yes. But you know, in our community, we also had a very prominent um, doctor, Dr. Dees. And he was a, you know, old school would come to your house with a black bag kind of physician who also had like a little, you know, TV show um, on local TV and would address public health issues. And so, you know, growing up, I didn't really know him. He was kind of like the generation before me. He was a much, much older man when I was a child, but we all knew where he lived. That's how Mm -hmm. we always knew Dr. D's house, you know, when we would pass it and stuff. And so there was very much that sense of like community level care that, you know, doesn't quite exist in the same way today. And I think that's, you know, that's a really um, huge change in the landscape of healthcare over time. And that might be, you know, to our own detriment. No, it definitely is. It's funny the way that you say about the community thing. So I had my first, my pediatrician was a Jewish lady and she was like, dope. I'm forgetting her name right now. But uh, when she retired, because she was like up there in her 80s still practicing, when I was like a babe. And when she retired, I got this random doctor who actually was cool. So sorry. She was another doctor who like was in the same community, but then the hospital system bought her out. And then I could see, I could feel even in my like 13, 14 year old stuff, I felt the shift in terms of how the experience went once the hospital kind of owned it, as opposed to her being just like, oh, I'm your pediatrician. This is my office. And I think those, a lot of the shifts away from individual doctors taking care of their community the the when you expand to these like hospital systems you kind of lose a lot of the personality and it's great because yeah. it's convenient you can get appointments with any no offense random you can see which i you know is important especially when your you know kids are small but as you get older you know you only see them once a year you want to see the same person who you you know has watched you grow you know and i think um it's it's a you're serious it's it's, it's a serious issue this community shift is like it's different because it feels different when it, you could feel like, okay, we do the same things. Like even now my daughter's pediatrician, 
you know, we do similar things. And she, you know, we're both, you know, physicians, but you know, like I know the community thing she's into. She knows my the the daycare my daughter goes to. And it's like, okay, that's a good one. When I first interviewed her to be my pediatrician, she gave me the lowdown, like, okay, they haven't had any COVID outbreaks yet. So they clearly doing something right. Like just different intel because she's a part of the community. She's just not a doctor here. She's a part of yeah. my like, you know, larger extended community. So that's a, yeah, I think a I mean I think that's a huge thing to really kind of recognize is that you know on both sides on our end of you know yeah. the exam table because you know understanding how that loss of connectivity and that loss of um you know just service to the community how it impacts patient care how it impacts you know their trust of us um and just generally like public health and well-being but then, you know, on the patient side, you know, we're always, always patients as well. And, mm. you know, how important that is to us that someone knows your name, that someone remembers something that, you know, you told them from a year ago, uh, that you ask about their family, that you, you know, remember that they were in grad school and, you know, what's going on there. And so those, those little tidbits, I think, really do make a big difference. You know, part of that, that loss of, uh, or that change in the healthcare structure of maybe losing that community is, you know, potentially creating a community on your own. Mm. Um, and so, you know, something that we really talked about and seen so much of is, you know, people coming to us, uh, very specifically seeking out physicians of color, um, and black female physicians specifically in some cases, because that they want to build this network of providers who they feel will take great care of them, not just, you know, clinically, but kind of an emotional, a social, a spiritual component that I think is, you know, very undervalued. So I think you were asking, you know, about why do people, why are we in demand, shall we say? Because, you know, I remember there was an episode of Married to Medicine and it was the opening season, opening episode this this least this last season, which was the first season after like, you know, the 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 big COVID uh, season and Dr. Jackie and Dr. Uh, Simone, uh, shout out to those two OBGYNs down in Atlanta. They were like high-fiving on the fact that girl, we are in demand. Like they said the money, they're both private physicians and they're like, the money is coming in because people specifically want a black female physician. And so much so that Dr. Jackie was actually able to even expand her practice to include another oh. um, black female physician, uh, black OBGYN. And so, you know, why are we in demand? Like, you know, we all feel it because we're in the community, but what, what are the, for people who are not Black female physicians, what do you think makes us so in demand right now? You know, I think about it, again, I always think about it twofold. Myself as a provider and myself as a patient. And I think, you know, the the biggest part of it is, you know, feeling welcome and feeling some connection and maybe there being some things um, that don't necessarily have to be explained or you feel that they could be judged um, because you feel like they're understood. Now, that doesn't mean that every single, you know, <laughs> um, sister MD you meet is going to understand you completely. But mm -hmm. I think that is what patients are seeking. And it goes back to that desire for that community kind of feel. Um, you know, I work in Brooklyn, I a hugely culturally diverse um, you know, region of New York City. Um, I see patients from all over the world, ethnic backgrounds from all over the world speak a million different languages. Um, and so it's not that we can all connect on every single, you know, avenue, 
But I do think that they want that sense of familiarity. You know, there's a lot of mistrust. There is a lot of um, fear, frank fear. Um, and unfortunately, you know, sprinkled throughout are bad experiences that, you know, make a patient feel uncomfortable. And so, you know, a place where they can have very sensitive conversations like we have with our girlfriends um, and in and, and a, a space where they feel welcome, where they feel they can be honest, which is so important in the work that we do. Uh, I think that's really, you know, what people are seeking. I know I there's more, but I, I think of that. And I think it's also like kind of, it is that girlfriend experience. And I know for me, I laid on thick. You're going to get all the colloquialisms to let you know, like, we in the same room, we'll be the same. Especially on telehealth. I do a lot of it on telehealth. Like, you know, if you can't see or feel someone, how can you make them still feel it and feel you? And so I will like, you know, have some patients where, you know, I've been watching bad TV on Zeus, like baddies of the South. And one of my patients was like, dang, my doctor watches baddies in the South. I'm like, yeah, this is how I keep myself connected with the community so I know what's going on. And honestly, I have to say, like, I I definitely lay it on thick. You know, I'm not going to lie because I know how I want to feel in that moment. And I will say for me, a lot of Black female physicians, especially OBGYNs, have all had fibroids. And I feel like when I was getting my fibroids taken care of, having to deal with people who had it firsthand and were able to give me like advice from their own experience was like paramount. Cause I think, you know, especially like even I remember one of my mentors, you know, she ended up doing my C-section for my daughter, but she told me about her experience in residency dealing with fibroids and like how she had to navigate that decision-making. And I was like, Oh wow. Like this is what it feels like to feel like you get me, you get my experience. You see where I am in life. You see my station. And you're able to compare and contrast because I think sometimes when you are generically with some other providers, it's just like everybody gets the same, like, you know, I know for me, I definitely dovetail my experience with patients based on who they are. So, you know, I, you know, people know I'm a founder, a culture, a co-founder at Culture Care, but like, if you come in and, you know, like you are Eritrean, I'm going to say it's a vault. Like, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to greet you into Grenya. You know, like mm -hmm. if you have a Habisha baby, I'm going to be like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to give you that experience. <laughs> and so for me, it's like, it's not just meeting the person if we have in commonalities, it's also saying, I see you. And that's not to say that everybody should jump and start doing these things, but it's you have to understand that culture somewhat before you can start doing those things. But it's given that experience of like, I see you, I see where you are. I see where you're going. I see where you've been. And I can say, I even get that a lot from my like girlfriend patients who aren't even black. Like some of like my Latina patients, Yo, honestly, I don't speak Spanish and I speak a little bit and I've gotten good at it from just listening to the interpreter phone for the last four years. But sometimes like I know that like one patient, one girlfriend said to me, I know that it took a lot for you to get where you are in life and I see you. And I was just like, dang, like, mm -hmm. okay, we're on the same, you get me. And I think it's that mm -hmm. part and it's, it's hard to explain. Like that's why I'm rambling right now trying to explain mm -hmm. it. And you can't put it in a textbook, but the numbers are there. And I think that's why I love that scene from Married to Medicine where Dr. Jackie and I'm like, okay, it's our turn. We ready. Like people know they are looking for us. And that's how it feels in this moment. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. I, you know, I commend people for really just taking charge of their own healthcare in that way for defining, you know, what they want their interactions to be, to being vocal um, and, and really seeking out the providers. 
So, you know, one thing that we talk about is how can you even find what you're looking for? You know, some people may have done a great job and have kind of like built their team, but other people may still be looking, you know, in, in certain areas or for, you know, specialists or subspecialists or, you know, may have a black dentist and PCP, but looking for a black OBGYN and things like that. Um, and so we did want to provide just some, you know, resources that we've come across uh, that we've interacted with and some that we have not, but just heard about um, of, you know, ways that you could find maybe what you're looking for. So I wanted you to talk just a little bit about our culture care and let them know the work that you do there and how that could also be a way to interact with Black providers. Okay. Well, before that, I honestly want you to start because I think it's important for people to find where they can get their in-person care since we're all completely telehealth. But um, okay. so I know I threw it right back at you. I just punched you that my bad girl. No, that's okay. So, you <laughs> know, a MD. few of the ones that I think about are, um, you know, blackdoctor.org has a pretty robust registry. Um, and, you know, obviously most of these can all be found online. Many of them also available on different social media platforms like Facebook or Instagram. Um, but blackdoctor.org is one. Black Doctors USA is another one that kind of has some different um, physician registries that are available. Health in Her Hue is one that I, you know, keep coming across time and again, um, you know, specifically that has providers across the country. You can look at different profiles and what kind of medicine that they practice and select, you know, what you're looking for there. Um, I think you, into, or, yeah, we talked about Hued Co., um, before in, in a similar kind of fashion. Um, luckily, they have online registry. I'm not sure if it's um, like a just paid or if it's just freely available. But, you know, luckily, they do have, you know, a pretty robust registry um, of physicians that you can see, you know, where they are in the country and you can make contact that way. Find a Black Doctor is another one. Um that I thought was good. One that maybe a lot more people have heard about would be Therapy for Black Girls, um, which is you know all about founding mental health providers close to you, and they have a large online database um, as well as you know podcasts and other kind of offerings to help. And I think that one is is super super important. I love that podcast. Um, you on that podcast. Yeah, I was on it maybe about a year ago, but it's funny mm -hmm. because I'm a huge fan of it. I think that the, the format is really good um, and the content is interesting. Uh, and then, you know, in, in our field, more specifically, you know, women's health providers, uh, Dr. Cindy Duke is a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist um, in Las Vegas. Um, but she's taken it upon herself to start to um, also produce a directory of Black female physicians in the U.S., and you can find that on her webpage. Um, I believe it's drcindyduke.com, uh, where you can just, you know, look through um, Black physicians from across the country and across a spectrum of um, specialties. And I will say the key thing is once you find a Black doctor, ask them how to find people in other specialties. I think Typically, we are the plug because we know who's what and where and why and all those different things. Um, a lot, a huge part of what we do is culture care. So we do, we're not a director. We have our physicians that contract with us so that we can offer uh, access to Black physicians. So let's say you live in Wyoming, where there might not be a lot of Black doctors that you can actually travel and see. 
um, once we get to Wyoming. Um, but basically, it's to make it so that you don't have the typical barriers of location and health insurance. So we don't take health insurance for the price of a copay. So that, you know, when you sometimes go to that list, you kind of are like limited by who actually takes your insurance. But a lot of what we do do is kind of plug people in with Black doctors we know in the community and kind of like on the sidelines, you know, get into those doctors because th those doctors are our friends. They're a part of our like larger physician community and see if we can get them on, get you on their panel, even if their panel is closed. Because quiet is kept, you know, all of us went to medical school hoping we would serve our community. And, you know, it's hard to do that when you just have an employer who, you know, whoever has a slot, has an appointment, that's who you're going to see. And so really it's about, you know, it's kind of like a matching making service essentially um, once you actually get to see us. So the key thing is if you have a black doctor, ask them who else they know, who they know who's in dermatology. Like I had a skin issue and my primary care physician referred me, she gave me a list of dermatologists, but I noticed, I was like, no, these are black people. Like, okay, I see you want someone who's going to get that skin of color experience, got that melanin. So really like we are the experts because we know who who's good and also who's available and sometimes our friends and we can get you the hookups to be seen sooner so just ask yeah. so i got a shout out you know we were going through all these different you know black women being in demand as physicians black physicians being in demand but i really have to shout out the medical schools and the residency programs to actually let these people complete their program because there is data coming out that is very difficult for uh, people of color to not only get into medical school, but get into training, complete training. So those who allow us to finish and do our art and do our craft, thank you. Okay. And so just kind of in that same vent, our medical lease segment today, which is just some words you may hear thrown around when you go to the hospital, thrown around on, you know, you know, U.S. News, you know, uh, the Yelp reviews. Uh, it's really like, where do people go to medical school? So what is a medical student? And then residency programs, so where are they actually trained? And then also fellowship, which is an extra level, a little extra thickening layer on top of all the good stuff that is training that Dr. Jackson Bay had time to do, but that she did not have time to do. Um, so um, I'm going to start, I'm going to kick it off with med school and then I'll let you do residency. And then I'm going to try and describe fellowship for you. Cause I know what I saw you go through. Um, but, uh, for medical school, uh, medical school is after you completed four years of college. So the beauty of, I think of becoming a doctor, especially in this day and age is that when I was in medical school, I mean, college, I studied African and African American studies that the degree is back then according you can't see it. But that was a good experience for me to just kind of study my people, study the literature of my people. But when it came to medical school, that's when I learned the biochemistry, the organic chemistry. And then that's when you see your first patients. So when you're in medical school, you are essentially like shadowing other physicians or physicians and you're a student doctor. So they may come round on you and then they have to report all that back to another physician and they make the decision in terms of what the plan is. So a medical student isn't really deciding your plan. What they are is gathering information. And I think that's the beauty of medical school is that you're learning by being in the thick of it. So really when I tell my medical students is the main thing you need to focus on is the history and the physical. What are you hearing from the patient? Are you asking the right questions? And then are you doing the right exam? And what is your exam? What are your exam findings? Because that was a beauty for, you know, Dr. T and I is that when we were in Ghana, we didn't have CT scans readily available. We didn't have, we didn't have ultrasound readily available. So it really made us tap into those clinical 
skills and really just touching patients and figuring out what's going on. And so that's really the charge of the medical students, really to collect the history and physical. Now, when it comes to plan, those things come more so with training. Yeah, so the, after you graduate from medical school, you have your DMD, uh, medical doc doctorate, or, or DO, right? Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine, which qualifies you as a physician in this country. But you do have to take additional tests and get this on-the-job training, which we call residency. Once upon a time, you actually kind of lived on the hospital compound, and that's why you were the resident physician. These days, we can't live in a the hospital. There are way too many work uh, But it still feels like it. I think last episode I like or a couple episodes ago, I talked about how I felt like my residency program was my home and I visit. It, really. it definitely feels like it. We all had our, our favorite corner for a nap. Um, but we no longer live at the hospital, but we do spend an incredible amount of time in hospitals and clinics now focused on learning which specific field you want to go into, whether that's pediatrics or psychiatry, internal medicine, uh, obstetrics and gynecology, all of these different fields. And so as a resident, you are a doctor, but you're being supervised by more senior doctors that we'll call attendings. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And, you know, through this process, it's a graduated amount of responsibility. So your first year, you, you know, may have certain, maybe more simple patients. You um, do look after the medical students and you can have, you know, uh, more simple procedures and surgeries and things like that. And then as you're learning with time, you do more advanced things towards the end of your residency. And so, you know, people who seek care in hospital-based systems um, in clinics associated or affiliated with hospitals may notice that they're being seen by a resident physician or that, um, you know, maybe from year to year, your doctor may look different because it's a different person in that role. And that may be due to interacting with the resident. Um, there is another, you know, kind of graduated level of care that after residency, you can take on even more training in a, in a way we call subspecialization. So like internal medicine doctors may go on to be primary care doctors, or they may continue their studies to be a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist GI doctor. Mm -hmm. And so that extra step requires more training. And so that's what we call fellowship. You know, I did a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, which means that after four years of medical school, after four years of residency, then I spent an additional three years focusing solely on reproductive medicine and infertility special, uh, specialty. And so that's where you can get an extra level of care. Again, fellows are physicians. They can, you know, do surgery um, and see patients and, you know, come up with kind of basic level treatment plans, but now they're adding to their skill set with this subspecialization. So they're still always going to be under the care of what we call an attending physician. But also I will say fellows too, you know, I look at it as kind of like, you know, there's levels to this, like the song says, but it's an extra layer of like expertise because, you know, like when you were a fellow, you still could do uh, moonlighting as an attending physician in obstetrics. So mm -hmm. you still have your skills that you came into it with. Now, whether you're doing that now, obviously not. But mm -hmm. while you're in that fellowship zone, you still are proficient in those other things that were on the basic level. Mm -hmm. And not to say basic, but, you know, being a generalist, you are a master of many things. 
Whereas mm-hmm. when you are in fellowship, you're learning how to kind of get that laser focus on one thing. And so that's why now you're laser focused on how to retrieve eggs, how to get people pregnant, how mm-hmm. to, you know, trigger people. Yeah, all these different yeah. Things how that, to you know, have a success- successful early portion of pregnancy. Yes even though I don't deliver babies anymore. So we get you through this, you know, first two or three months of pregnancy, and then you graduate on to seeing your OB will take care of you for the rest of pregnancy and, you know, for life after pregnancy. So it's, it's you know, that's definitely, um, it, that's a great description because it's it goes from kind of a more broad focus to a more narrow focus when you go from resident to fellow. Then what about attendings? And so I tell people that attendings are, who that's who's in charge essentially so when it comes to you know one of my favorite lines from Grey's Anatomy which I only could watch when I was in medical school once I became a real doctor I, was like, I can't oh, do it either so extra. <laughs> but when I was aspiring I was like oh my gosh Grey's Anatomy um but shout out to uh Miranda Bailey because I remember she shout had out to this line. Rides, my girl. Yes. when I she had this line when I was uh when I was like maybe early couple the first couple seasons when she was treat, treat, teaching a lesson to O'Malley about hierarchy or somebody, and she said, why do we have hierarchy in medicine? And she's like, because it saves lives. Because you need to know who's in charge in different moments so that the right person is able to act. And so really, when places don't do that, when you don't run things efficiently to code, and this is when bias can become a problem. Because if you don't see you know, someone like Dr. Tirai coming in as the physician, that's how things get lost in translation. It's like, no, I'm the doctor. You need to do what I said because this needs to go down now. We got five minutes for this code. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, but really that hierarchy is important. And so what the attending physician is, is they are the person who everyone essentially answers to in terms of like the medical student, uh, resident team. And then sometimes if there are um, advanced uh, pro- practice, practitioner providers, um, advanced practice providers, um, sometimes they need things to be co-signed or sometimes they, you know, if there's something they don't understand, they can circle to the attending, but it's kind of like, you know, heavy as the head that wears the crown. And I think, you know, after being the only OBGYN in the hospital, when I'm, when I worked night shifts for the last four years, it was like, it's on you. Like, it's like, you know, you are the one who has to act. You have to be capable. You have to have your skill set correct. And, you know, I think, um, the attending life, I think, is great because it's like the, the culmination of all your years of of training. You know, mm-hmm. I'm here. But the thing about, about medicine is that you are always going to be doing medical learning. It's never over. There's always some new study coming out. There's always some new practice. And that's why I'm so glad kind of to go back to what we talked about, like, why are Black, you know, doctors in demand? It's because we know that they exist. You know, we know, like... I feel like the social media, like, you know, people see like, oh, I could have a doctor like that if they live where I live. And, you know, all the, even the TV shows, all these things is like, you know, Miranda Bailey, even like these are like realities that we that people didn't have in previous generations to know what their options even were. So I'm glad yeah. that we're at this point where so many of us are attendings. Um, it's a very, very long road. You know, as you know, Dr. Um, Tia and I have been friends since we were in our 20s. Is that true? Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but you know what I mean? Like it's it's a it's a it's a it's a long road. And so honestly, you know, I think the attending life, you know, is definitely great because you're able to build your own schedule and you know, you know, I know me, I thrive on like, you know, being the boss and making that decision. I like, I don't know. 
I ain't gonna lie. You know, it's not, <laughs> I'm not drunk with power, but it's like, I like that I was well-trained for this moment. And mm -hmm. one of my favorite lines that got me through residency was from uh, Muhammad Ali, the greats, the goats, um, who said, uh, suffer now while you're in training so that you can live like a king and when you're a champion. And so like, yes, training was hard. It was grueling. It was a very long process. Each of us know we could give you the war stories. We got the trauma bond to prove it. <laughs> we got this podcast. <laughs> but I really feel like I am, you know, I have so many more, you know, I finally now feel like I'm at the point where I have so many options because I did choose this path. Whereas if I hadn't, you know, I might not have these options. I might not be able to start my own business or have my own business. Um, and I'm super gra grateful for that, for like where I am personally. So, you know, and even just the ability to say, no, like, I don't want this job. I want that job. Like I've been able mm -hmm. to make that shift like twice now. And I'm like, that's, that's a blessing, you know? It's so a huge blessing. It's, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I think, you know, this time of year too, or we, we were recently just getting so many like holiday cards and seeing, you know, all the families that we help to grow. And mm -hmm. that really, it, it makes you feel like all the tussle and toil is worth it because the day-to-day -day work is very difficult. The training was, you can't even describe how difficult it was, but you know, it doesn't end. The day-to-day -day is really tough too. Um, but being able to, you know, one, participate in things like this, to, you know, getting that feedback from the patients and the girlfriends that you've helped over the years. And, and you know, people have grown their families. It just makes it all worth it. Hey, girlfriend, here's where to find us. Hi, I'm Dr. Joy Cooper. I am a board certified obstetrician gynecologist based in the Bay Area of California. I am currently not seeing patients in person anymore. I'm completely 100% telehealth. You can find me at Culture Care. Our website is OURculturecare.com because we do it for the culture, our culture. We are a telemedicine startup that is connecting Black women with Black physicians at the cost of a copay. So if you would love to see me and you're based in California and New York shortly, you can just go on our website and see me. I am Dr. Tia Jackson Bay. I'm a board certified obstetrician, gynecologist, and infertility specialist. The long name for that is reproductive endocrinology and infertility is my field. I'm based in Brooklyn, New York, and you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Tia Jackson Bay. Thanks for joining us and don't forget to subscribe and check out our website, ndgfexp.com. Have a great one, girlfriends.